The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here this morning. Let me just tell you what I'm going to do here. These first seven verses here, Paul is just laying out his heart, telling the people that you know us, you know who we are. He's kind of combating attacks that are coming against him, whether whether they are really coming or he's anticipating them, we don't know. But he's dealing with the integrity of him and his team. So what I want to do today is, is go through these seven verses exegetically, and then we're going to come back next week in part two, pleasing God, and talk about what we can do as believers to please God. Because the Bible says there are several things we can do that are pleasing to God, and hopefully as believers, we want to do that. We want to please God. So we'll talk about that next week. All right, so we're continuing our study this morning of 1 Thessalonians. We finished chapter 1 last week, and Paul was just praising and thanking God for the health and the commitment of the believers in this congregation. I mean, he just just filled with praise for them. And we saw that they had joyfully embraced the gospel, even though it brought them suffering and persecution. They had turned to God from idols, he says, and he said their example had been proclaimed abroad so that many others were being impacted by their lives. Paul described these new believers as a pattern or a model for all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's quite an incredible testimony there. Now, these believers in Thessalonica had not just trusted Christ. They were following Him as disciples. And if you've been watching me or following me for any length of time, you know that I make a distinction between a Christian and a disciple. I make that distinction because I think it's biblical. In John 15, we see Yeshua's words. He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, Yeshua is speaking here to his disciples Judas was not present at this time. He had left. And he says to them, you are clean. This is a Greek word, katharos. Katharos is a cleansing. He's he's saying this to his disciples because they have been bathed in the gospel. They have been cleansed. Now, if you go back to chapter 13, he uses this word katharos. And he says, you are clean, but not all. And the reason he said that is because Judas was there in chapter 13. He's not there anymore. So he tells the disciples, you're clean. So he's saying here, you're Christians. You're clean. You've trusted me. Then he says to those that are clean, abide in me. Now this is a strong word in the original text. It's in a tense that expresses a decisive command. So he's telling those who are Christians, I want you to abide in me. It's in the active voice. It's something that we are expected to do. We initiate that. Believers, we are commanded to abide in Christ. Now, how do we do that? What exactly does it mean? Well, he tells us in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. So that's what abiding is. It's obeying Him. You only abide in Christ when you keep His word. When you walk as He walked. Now, 
no one follows him perfectly, of course. But as a disciple, the direction, the aim of your life will be obedience to the teachings of Christ revealed in the Scriptures. And the Thessalonians were literally fleshing this out. Paul couldn't have said anything higher or better about them. He just is so enamored by the life that these people are living. Now, as we move into chapter 2, we're going to see that Paul is defending himself against some opponents. Probably the Jews who drove him out of Thessalonica. They were trying to discredit Paul so they could discredit the gospel, the word that he was saying. And believers, here's something I want you to get. I want you to understand this. If the reputation of the messenger can be damaged, then the message is less likely to be trusted. Do you understand that? And that's why a lot of times if you're in an argument, a discussion with somebody, and they don't have an argument, they attack you. Okay, because well, we'll just discredit you and then what you're saying won't mean anything. All right. And this is this is important for us in Christianity to understand. I mean, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to share with people what Christ is about, our life has a lot to do with that. And if we're not living what we're preaching, we're doing damage to the whole situation. John Stott writes this in First Thessalonians two and three more perhaps than anywhere else in the letters, Paul discloses his mind, expresses his emotion, and bears his soul. Now, although the details are not exactly known, it seems apparent from what Paul writes here in these seven verses that there has been an attack on the integrity of the ministry team. Or at least, he is expecting one based on prior experience. So Paul reminds his flock of the team's impeccable character in these first seven verses of chapter 2. He's trying to tell them, listen, you know, there's nothing wrong with our character. We behaved ourselves the way you should behave yourself. All right? Now, I think that in a culture like ours, where the authority of God's Word is being ignored today, when the church and its ministers are so often, they turn to human methods, and operate out of false motives, this chapter is not only powerfully instructive, but it stands as a strong rebuke to so much of what we see happening in churchianity today. Because Paul's saying, listen, our message is true, but our lives back it up. He says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, this verse is parallel with one nine, where he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reputation we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. All right, the term translated as reception here is from the Greek word asados. Coming and reception, both are from the same word asados, which can mean the act of entering a place, or even the place through which one enters, the entrance of the place. So this is the same Greek word in 2.1 and in one nine here. And both of these ver- verses focus on the effect of Paul's preaching upon the hearers. You know, you know what happened when we came to Thessalonica. You're witnesses of what went on there. And that's what he says, you yourselves know. He's just calling on the Thessalonians to remember the experience they had when Paul showed up there. Now, the call to remember what they already knew appears frequently in this section. I don't know if you caught it when Garrett was reading it, 
But verse 1, he says, you yourselves know. Verse 2, he says, as you know. Verse 5, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember, brethren. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, just as you know. Six, I think they knew something, or supposed to, okay? <laughs> Six times in 11 verses, he appeals to what they already know. They are Paul's witnesses, and he's literally calling on them. Listen, when attacks come against us, you are our witnesses. You were there. You know what happened. And later he's going to call upon another witness. But first he calls on the Thessalonians, then he calls another witness. And by the mouth of two witnesses, the Word of God says, let every word be established. And then Paul says this, our coming to you was not in vain. The word vain here is kanos, which means empty, without content, without basis, without truth or power. It could be used in the sense of without result, without effect, fruitless, so to speak. This, ver- this word, kanos, is used of an empty jar. It's used of sending someone away empty-handed or of empty words. I can't overstate that this is a great understatement, people. All right, When he says, our coming to you was not in vain, it wasn't any close to being in vain. Okay, This is an exaggeration. The coming was incredible. What happened was absolutely incredible. Look at 1 Thessalonians 6, uh, 1, 6-9. He says, you became imitators of us in the Lord. We're all called to imitate God, but he says, listen, you Thessalonians, you followed us, you imitated us, you imitated the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I mean, they received the word, and and again, they've only been Christians for less than a year, and they're an example to the whole area. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. That's, this is an incredible testimony, people. So that we need not say anything. Paul says, I don't even need to go in these areas and try to evangelize because you guys have done such a good job already. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Everything he says about them, this is incredible. Paul and the team visit Thessalonica, and their visit was anything but fruitless. Again, I don't see how it could have been a more effective ministry in Thessalonica. I mean, this would be every evangelist's dream to go into a town and preach the gospel and see this happening with the people. Okay, So when he says, this is not in vain, he definitely means that. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully entreated at Philippi, as you know... We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The but here is Allah, which is a strong adversative conjunction. It denotes a contrast. His boldness, in spite of strong opposition, had no doubt made a lasting impact on the readers. Now you got to remember, Paul is coming. Well, let me I'll get ahead of myself. But the unbelieving world takes notice when they see the reality of Christianity. When Christians continue to be faithful to Christ despite difficult circumstances, despite bad circumstances. Again, your neighbors don't care. Your friends at work don't care. Nobody cares when you're praising God when everything is going the way you want it to go. But when they see your life literally crumbling and your world is falling apart and you're still giving praise and glory to God, That makes them take notice. Like, what is this? 
There's something here that they can be faithful in the midst of these kind of circumstances. He said, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. So again, he's appealing to what they know. Well, let me ask you, how about you? Do you remember what happened to them at Philippi? And when you read things like this, let's say you're reading through your Bible and you get this and you're like, what happened to them at Philippi? Do you go back to Philippi and find out what happened? Because it makes the story a little more important when you connect the dots here, all right? Well, while in Philippi, Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten because Paul cast out a python demon from a slave girl who was making her masters a lot of money. And when you hit people in the pocketbook, they get upset, they get mad. All right, so the text tells us in Acts 16, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in the inner prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So what the Romans would do is they would strip them, take the clothes off them, and they would beat them with this bundle of rods. They would beat their back, their sides, their legs. Now, the Jews had a limit, all right? The Jews were only allowed to beat someone 40 times, so they always did 39 in case they missed a number, okay? So, missed one in there. So, they would do 39. The Romans didn't have a limit, okay? The Romans could do it as long as they felt like doing it, all right? This is severe physical trauma. The pain would have been great, okay? Now, as Paul and Silas lay in the inner prison after this beating, they're put in the stocks, and they're down there singing praise to God. You think of this situation, you think they're definitely not American Christians. I mean, literally, I have heard American Christians whine and question God's goodness because they got a flat tire. Because their air conditioning in their car quit working. Because of some, you know, insignificant first world problem. All right? But these men are beaten... They're put in the stocks, in the inner prison, there's no windows, it's just a dungeon. You didn't ring a bell when you needed to go to the bathroom, you were just there, okay? And they're praising God, okay? And as they do, an earthquake destroys the prison, the jailer and his family come to faith as a result, and they join with Lydia and her household to form the first home church on the European continent. And from Philippi... They leave there. They're basically, the believers tell them, you've got to get out of here. Okay, they don't get away. They head off to Thessalonica. All right? Uh, Acts 16.40 through 17.1 says, So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now when they had passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. All right, so they leave Philippi, they head to Thessalonica. Now, it appears from the text that they just go right through Amphilius, which was about 30 miles away, and right through Apollonia, another 30 miles or some away, and they finally get to Thessalonica, which is about 100 miles from Philippi. Now listen, they had just taken a severe beating, and they travel 100 miles, okay? on either horseback or walking. Now, back in 97, I was in a plane crash, a four-seater pipe, Cherokee Piper. Our engine stopped. We crashed, okay? Everybody got out okay. No one was seriously hurt at all. 
But we crashed in Columbia, South Carolina. There was, it was on Christmas Day. There was no rental cars to be had. We called all the places. Couldn't until Kathy called friends of ours that lived close by, and they brought us a car, a little tiny Toyota. And I remember the trip home was so agonized because we were all so sore. I mean, we just crashed, and we were so sore. Just getting out of this little Toyota was like a pain. It was like agony. I can't imagine being beaten and then getting on a horse. You ever ridden a horse? It's not a real smooth ride, okay? Or walking, you know, but they do all that, and they just go right into Thessalonica. And what do they do when they get there? They start doing what got them beaten in the first place, okay? Preaching the gospel, all right? When they arrive, you know, I think the wounds that they had obviously were still fresh. Here's the thing. These people are accusing Paul of being in it for himself, being in it for the money. Uh, There's no way, okay? If Paul was at all concerned about his self-interest, he, if he gets to Thessalonica, he's going to head to the tavern or someplace to take care of his wounds, not to start preaching the gospel again. That's what got him a beating. But he comes to Thessalonica, he preached the same message boldly in spite of the opposition, in spite of the fact he's still pretty sore from the last beating. Now, in our text, the word suffered here is the word propasco, which means to undergo hardship previously. To suffer before. So they were abused physically and then put in the stocks in prison. So they had suffered before. And then he says they were shamefully entreated. This is the Greek word hubridzo, which means to exercise violence, to demonstrate abuse, to despitefully reproach and treat shamefully. Now, some think this has to do more with the legal abuse that they were unjustly judged. They were Roman citizens. They should have never been beaten. And I really think Paul could have just stopped it before it ever started by saying, hey, we're Roman citizens. What? They, they, you don't beat a Roman citizen, all right? But he went through it, and I'm not saying I understand that, okay? But I think that maybe part of this shamefully treated is as Roman citizens, they, they couldn't do this to him. So if so, they were abused both physically and legally. It'd be like being in the American justice system today, right? Well, as Paul arrived at Thessalonica, I would think he probably had trouble standing up because of the beating he had, and yet he goes right to preaching. And the evidence of Paul's physical pain had to be apparent to the Thessalonians. All right, they had to say, this guy's having a hard time standing, he's having a hard time moving. He, they know, they heard that he just got this severe beating. And he, Paul makes it clear to them that what had happened to him would likely happen to them if they were faithful to preach the gospel also. It says, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The word boldness here, parasiadzomai, and it means to use freedom in speaking, to be free-spoken. In the New Testament, this verb is always used with reference to proclaiming the gospel. There's just a boldness to preach no matter what. The early believers prayed for this boldness. All right, in Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin had got them, they had arrested him, they said, don't speak anymore in that name. And so they go back to the community of believers, they get together, and they say, now Lord, look upon their threats and smite them, Lord. Judge these evil, sickening tyrants, protect us from anything they... Well, that's not what the text says. 
I must be making that up. He says, grant your servants to continue to speak the word with boldness. Would that be your prayer? <laughs> I mean, the Sanhedrin threatens them, and they go to prayer, but instead of asking even for protection or to judge those evil leaders, they just pray, give us boldness. They told us don't speak. Give us boldness to speak. That's defiance, okay? <laughs> That's rebellion. I love it, all right? You know, the Paul also prayed for boldness in the face of suffering. In Ephesians 6, he says, Pray for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It sure seems like this prayer of Paul was answered, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, he was bold in the face of suffering. For Paul was suffering that he would gladly bear for the sake of the elect. Notice what he says in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body, that is the church. You know, he doesn't say, Man, I really dread the stuff that's happened to me. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. There's a connection in the New Testament between suffering and joy. We've lost that connection, but there in the New Testament, there is that connection. Whatever Paul's circumstances were, he never lost his joy. So let me say to you that I think that if a Christian loses their joy, it's not because of bad circumstances, it's because of bad connections. You don't lose your joy unless your communion with Christ breaks down. Because if you're in communion with God, it doesn't matter what's happening around you. You have the joy of being in fellowship with God. Now, in what sense were Paul's suffering? This is a, an interesting verse here. In what sense were his suffering filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction? He says, I'm filling up what's lacking. A lot of different voices on this, on this verse here. But I think Paul... In that Paul was receiving persecution that was intended for Christ. Yeshua, having ascended to heaven, was out of their reach, but because his enemies had not filled up all the injuries they wanted to inflict on him, they turned in hatred upon those who were preaching the gospel of Christ. So it was in that sense that Paul was filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction. How different is this Christ-like view of suffering from that of the false teachers? False teachers would have, see, Paul's being accused of being a false teacher. They would have ran away from suffering at all costs. That's not what they're in it for. They're in it for the money. They're in it for the sex. They don't, not suffering, they don't want anything to do with that. Now, G.K. Beale has an interesting take on Paul's boldness here. I think it's, it's worth considering. He says, the idea that Paul was bold, we think of that, he's bold, he speaks the gospel, he's bold in front of people. Not merely towards people, but even in God's presence, and to Theo, or before God. So he's saying Paul was bold before God. That Paul has in mind boldness before God is apparent only two verses later, where he states, we speak as men approved by God who tests our hearts. Similarly, the notion of speaking boldly in the sphere of God's presence is evident, since the end of 2.2 clearly expresses with the same grammatical construction the sphere in which Paul was bold to speak, literally in the midst of much opposition. 
Paul spoke frankly in the presence of the God who witnessed to his integrity. Now, like I said, I think that bears some thought here, because what he's saying is this. If we have boldness before God in what we do for Him, it's a small thing to be brave towards humans carrying out God's work. I mean, if we're bold towards God, what do we care about anybody else and what they're saying? We have confidence. We have boldness before God. It was this kind of confidence before God that was the foundation upon which Martin Luther refused to deny his understanding of the gospel before his antagonists inquisitors. Luther said, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. He said, I just, I don't have a choice. I can't do anything else. Because he was bold before God. And his courage fanned the flames of the Reformation. Believers, I'm going to quit preaching and go to meddling here for a minute, okay? When is the last time you prayed for boldness in presenting the gospel? Chances are nobody's going to beat us. We're not going to get stuck in prison. Not yet, anyway. Uh, so, so we don't maybe think of that, but so often we just keep our mouth shut for, I don't know. Why do we do it? Well, Paul talks about here in the midst of much conflict. The word rendered conflict here is agon, which contains a metaphor drawn from the athletic games or the arena. It means a place of contest, and then the contest itself, a race, a struggle, a battle. This Greek term enters English as agony. The picture here is of these three men exerting themselves to the utmost to preach the gospel in a similar way as to an athlete who is straining to win an Olympic gold medal. Now notice that they are preaching, he says, the gospel of God. Now this phrase could mean the gospel about God, if we take it as an objective genitive, or it could mean the gospel from God, which would be a subjective genitive. Here, it's both, okay? It is the gospel about God that comes from God. Alright, so Paul mentions the gospel in verse 2, 4, 8, and 9, as well as he mentioned it in 1, 5, he mentions it in 3, 2. But in verses 2, 8, and 9, he refers to it as the gospel of God. This is the gospel about God that God has given us. Now, when we talk about the gospel, we have to realize there are a lot of false gospels out there. They want to teach you that the way to go to heaven is by some program, by some good works, by something that you do. Man wants to feel like he's done something. Sometimes, as in the Roman Catholic Church, faith in Christ and good works are combined. You have to believe in God, but you have to do this also. Just like the Judaizers in Paul's day combined faith in Christ with keeping the Jewish law. Just as the Church of Christ today combines faith and works with baptism. you got to have both to get saved. If you don't get wet, you don't get saved. But the gospel is that we are saved from God's judgment by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Okay? Alone. You have anything to the gospel, you've just destroyed the gospel. But people are so afraid of grace. Oh, if we just tell them they're just saved by believing the gospel, they might just, they might just 
do something wrong. The gospel is free. Okay? It's grace. It's all of God's grace. Completely of God's grace. Paul says in Romans 4, 5, to the one who does not work, but believes. So it's not about what you do. And if you want to understand, if somebody understands the gospel or not, just ask him. If you were to die right now and stand before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell him? And if they start listing accomplishments, you know they don't have a clue what the gospel is. Because the only answer is, because I've been saved by grace through Christ and what He's done. Nothing. There's nothing I've done. See, the Jews believed that God justified the godly. That's what religion believes. Okay, God justifies those people who work hard, the godly. If you want to be right with God, you have to be good. You have to do good works. You have to merit salvation. And people who don't understand the gospel will list their accomplishments. Well, I, I went to church every Sunday. Oh, like God gives you, oh, that's, he gets extra point for that one, you know. I give, I do this, I do that. No, they list what they do thinking that's, you know. There's a country song where I come from that says, working hard to get to heaven. I thought, well, you're on the totally wrong track. If you're working hard to get to heaven, that's not the right track at all. But see, what we have to understand is God is in the business of justifying the ungodly. That's absolutely stunning, okay? He only justifies the ungodly because that's the only kind of people there are. There are no good people who are understanding with God. We are all ungodly sinners. And I think we all should be very thankful that Paul did not say that God justifies the godly. If that were the case, we're all damned. Okay? Now the point of verse 2 in the context of this chapter I think is clear. Men who could sing hymns to God in prison after such a beating, such heinous treatment for preaching the gospel, that's what they were beaten for, preaching the gospel, but who were still not discouraged. It takes so little to discourage us today, I think, from speaking, from preaching. But they weren't discouraged, but boldly preached the gospel under those conditions. These men aren't likely to be phonies. That's why he's saying, you know, remember. Remember what it was like when we were there. We just got beat. We showed up and we just went ahead and started preaching the gospel in the midst of much affliction. So when they come to you and they start attacking our character, you're our witness. And then Paul says in verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. In the first century world that Paul lived in, there were many competing religions, just like today. Many ministers of those religions were motivated by greed and gain, just like today. Okay, In this city, you would find the worship of the gods of the Olympian pantheon, Apollo, Athenia, Hercules. There were the native uh, Greek mystery religions celebrating Dionysius, who was... Uh, was a cult of sex and drinking. That's a great religion, huh? The Greek intellectual and philosophical traditions were also represented in this city. There were shrines to many Egyptian gods there, Isis, Anubis, 
Also were present the Roman state cults that denied the political or deified the political heroes of Rome. Leon Morris writes and he says this. He says, There was probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. East and West had united and intermingled to produce an algum of real piety, high moral principles, crude superstition, and gross license. Oriental mysteries, Greek philosophy, and local godlings competed for the favor under the tolerant Aegeus of Roman indifference. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints jostled and clamored for the attention of the credulous and skeptical. So there's all kinds of people vying for attention. They're all evangelical, so to speak. They're all reaching out. The religions were missionary-minded. And they sought to spread their faith using itinerant evangelists and preachers. And most of these missionaries were opportunists who took everything they could from the listeners and then moved on to find somebody else to support them. Now, Paul instead distances himself from the habits of the sophists who entered the cities and the empire with great pomp in order to gain their audience's attention and make disciples from themselves. What motivated them, according to ancient sources, was money, fame, glory, praise. They were looking for something. They're not out to give like Paul's doing and suffer for it. They're out to get. He says, our appeal, and this is an interesting word here. I'm not sure why the translators put this word appeal. This is the word periclesis. that ring a bell? Paraclete. What's that? The Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. Yeshua is also called that. So periclesis, it's kind of like encourage. And I think it might have been better if it said, this may be better translated, when we encourage you, it did not come or spring from error or impurity. In other words, we're not encouraging them with false motives in mind. That's more the idea here. Is they're, they're encouraging, they're, they're coming alongside to help them. He said it doesn't spring from error. This is the word plana, the Greek word for planet, which referred to heavenly bodies, planets, comets, shooting stars. It referred to shooting stars that didn't follow the usual pattern of the constellations. Thus, they're called wanderers, and it developed metaphorically into the idea of error. They're not where they're supposed to be. They're erring. Well, Paul wasn't teaching error. He's preaching the gospel of God. That's his whole agenda. He got it from God. He's preaching it. And what we have to understand about error here is sound doctrine leads to spiritual health. When you understand doctrine... It gives you spiritual health. But bad doctrine, just like junk food, leads to spiritual sickness or disease. And so you get off in some area, especially dealing with the gospel, and you're in bad territory. It's amazing how much Paul had taught these believers, who a lot of them came from a pagan background, in the short time he was with them. He assumes they understand the doctrine of election. He assumes they understand the Trinity. He taught them about suffering. He taught them about the second coming, moral purity, and many other truths. In the short time they were there. So he had been not, they didn't spring from error. He is giving them the truth. He's building them up in the faith. He says it doesn't spring from error or from impurity. Now, this term impurity is from the Greek word 
a catharsia, from which we get the word catharsis. Catharsis means a cleansing. You put the A in front of it, it's no, it's not cleanse. Okay, this is uncleanliness. The word can be used of physical uncleanliness, dirty. It can be used of some kind of social stigma, social uncleanliness. But it primarily refers to sexual uncleanliness. Now, their world was a mess sexually, but ours is <laughs> absolutely in the same situation, all right? Most often, this word seems to have sexual connotations. I think that as a general rule, you will find that false teachers are not pure in the sexual area. Okay, because a lot of them, that's the whole point of being in this. Okay, a lot of these cults, a lot of these things, you know, the women are, you know, they're there to meet the needs of the heads of these groups. How many preachers and teachers have fallen because of sexual sin? I can name dozens that I know personally. All right? And Paul uses the word this way, and distancing himself from the associates and various cults in Thessalonica that gave place and even promoted sexual sin. See, many of the Greek cults, the mystery religions for sure, were associated with sexual perversion. And most of the temples of the cults of the ancient days, there were temple prostitutes. All right, these are ritual, ritual prostitution, which made the sex act a religious experience. In other words, these temple prostitutes, they were in touch with the deity. So you want to get in touch with the deity, you go into the temple and you have sex with these prostitutes, now you're in touch with the deity. Okay? You know that men made up this stuff, right? No woman would have made this up, that's for sure. Okay, but men, being men, yeah, let's make a religion out of this. We could get a great following, right? So sexual sin. All right, Bible speaks so strongly against sexual sin because the Bible calls us to purity. Well, Paul goes on to say, or any attempt to deceive. Now, in the other terms in this verse, Paul is talking about his motives, but here he talks about an atmosphere of deception. And this word, dalos, translated deceit, was used for bait that a fisherman uses. So you get that connection, right? Puts a worm on a hook. I don't understand that, because do fish normally see worms floating around in the water? <laughs> I mean, that would be unusual to me. I'd be thinking, that worm does not belong here, okay? But anyway... The <laughs> He goes after the worm and he ends up being the meal instead of getting a meal, all right? And a deceitful person who is pleasing men tells people what they want to hear. Because that's the way you keep people there. You tell them what they want to hear. You make them feel good by that. You use deception. In verse 4 he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he says, we've been approved by God. This perfect passive indicative has the connotation of testing with a view towards approval. The word here is dakimazo. It means approve. In the sense commonly meant testing, they would use this on coins to test the genuineness of a coin. And Paul's saying the missionary team had been continued to be tested and approved of God. In other words, hey, We've been approved of God. What we're doing is right. We're preaching the truth. We're not being deceitful. We have been approved. 
Now, the words approved and test here are identical in the Greek. They're both dokimadzo. Approved is used in the past tense to indicate that examining and approval had already occurred. But test is in the present tense, emphasizing it's continuing. So God has approved us. He's still testing us. All right? And he says, we've been entrusted with the gospel. This is an heirs passive infinitive. Paul comes from the same root as, this comes from the same root as pistuo. Do you recognize that? That's faith, believe, trust. The basic idea is to entrust something to another. And Paul and his companions, they have been approved of God, and God entrusted them with the gospel message to carry that out. He says, we speak not to please men, but to please God. That's what I've entitled the message, Pleasing God. And again, we're going to talk about next week how we can personally do this, because this was Paul's drive. This was his goal. I want to please God. This is why he had a bold, effective witness. Look what he says in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? He said, if I were trying to please man, I wouldn't be the servant of Christ. Okay? Paul sought to please God. That was his drive, to please Him. Now, the tense of the infinitive here, to please, which expresses aim, is a present continuous tense. In this we see the constant aim of Paul and his associates. Wherever the primary aim is to please man, we lose our capacity to please God. Paul told the Corinthians to imitate him. Why? Because he was imitating Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he tells the Thessalonians, you're doing this. You're following us. You're imitators of us. You're imitators of God. But Paul did this because he is imitating Yeshua, who in John 8.29 says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. So Paul's like his Lord. He is living to please the Father. Our only motive in doing anything as a Christian should be a heartfelt desire to please God. J.B. Lightfoot wrote this, Few temptations assail the preacher more strongly than this one to please men. Even if God is not pleased, though with the dim hope that God will, after all, condone or overlook. Nothing but experience will convince some preachers how fickle is popular favor and how often it is at the cost of failure to please God. So the fundamental motivation of their ministry was to please God rather than people. That's what they were trying to do. Now, I think this is one of our great problems today. There's too many churches, there are too many preachers today that are seeking to please man. Why? Why would they do that? Hmm? Yeah. Okay, money. Money's at the top of the list. Okay, let me tell you how it works. Depends on what your goals are. All right? I've talked to so many preachers, their goal is to have the biggest church. So if that's your goal, then you don't do anything that might hinder people from coming in there. Right? Because your goal is big. All right, so you don't say anything that might offend them. You've got to be careful. Any doctrine you preach, because there's always a doctrine somebody doesn't like. Okay, so you've got you to just kind of dance around that and make sure you don't. You want to keep them coming to church, 
because you just bought this huge building, you got to pay for it, right? So if they're mad about something, so you've got to seek to please people to keep them coming, to keep them giving. Because when people get upset, they stop giving. Sometimes they just stop giving and be mad and don't leave. Sometimes they stop giving and leave. But you want to please people because that's, you know, you're trying to do something that is not, you know, in the sense of pleasing God. But it's, it's, it's such a trap. And when I was in the Baptist church, I was a youth pastor. They had a big Baptist convention once a year. The Sunday before that convention, your goal was to get as many people in church as you could, by whatever means. Why? So when you went to the convention, what you said was, we had this many at church last Sunday. That's, that was the only thing that mattered. Seriously, the only thing that mattered. So the pastor would come to me and he goes, how many kids can you have Sunday? And I said, how much money can you give me? I mean, seriously, give me the money. I'll get, you know, I'll do everything, you know. Uh, we had pizza. We had this. We had that. Took them to King's Dominion. You know, and we, we packed the place out just so the next week you could go say, hey. But again, if your goal is numbers, then you have to be very careful. Okay, you can't offend people. My... <laughs> My wife has said to me so many times, aren't you worried that when you say some of these things, people are going to quit? I'm, I never consider it. Okay, I'm not really, I don't take that into consideration. I don't know why. Maybe I'm not smart enough. I just don't. Okay, I teach what I think is true. If people don't like it, there's a lot of other people out there teaching stuff, okay? But I have to teach what I think is true. You know, I have to teach what I think is right. I've had a lot of people tell me, that was such a gutsy move you did when you left the church and started a new church. And I'm like, no, that wasn't gutsy at all. I didn't have a choice. And people are like, what do you mean you didn't have a choice? I didn't have a choice. The way I'm wired, I saw it as true. That's all I can do, is teach what I see. So it's not like I, well, maybe I could just not teach that. I'm not wired that way. So it wasn't a choice for me. It was just, this is what you have to do. There's no options. And so you just do it. Okay, so it wasn't anything, you know, courageous on my part. I'm just, you know, I didn't like it at all. (laughs) I was kind of stuck in a bad spot. I'm like, why'd you show me this, Lord? Now I got to teach this. And but it worked out, you know, Um, by the grace of God, by the grace so far, 25, 25 years in April. It's worked out, uh, which is absolutely amazing. All right. Verse five, he says, for we never came with words of flattery. And you see what he's doing here? That's what the false teachers do. We didn't do that. As you know, nor the pretext for greed, God is witness. <laughs> you know what flattery is? It's a form of exploitation. Okay, Flattery is based upon the fact that everybody's ego loves to hear good things about themselves. It's manipulative. Okay? It's commonly viewed as a way to get money out of others. So the double denial here of flattery and greed in this verse is not surprising. They're, they are definitely connected. He says, not we didn't do it as a pretext. Prophesis, meaning a cloak of pretext. We didn't try to hide. We didn't try to cover up what we were actually doing. And greed here, pleoxia, is greed or selfishness. You know, Paul was often accused of greed or opportunism, because that was characteristic of the false teachers. And this is why he was so careful. He didn't ask them for money. 
He wouldn't ask the congregation. He's with, you know, he's there for money. Now, the Philippians sent him a congreg, you know, offerings a couple times when he was in Thessalonica, but he didn't ask for it. And Paul says, God is my witness. He is swearing an oath to God here, calling God to be his witness. So now this is the second witness. The Thessalonians can witness. They knew his integrity. They knew their integrity. And God, he calls us a witness too. That's a bold move, people. You better be absolutely sure of your intentions when you call God as a witness, okay? Because he knows, okay? He knows it all. And that's a bold move on Paul's sake, you know, point there. He says, we didn't seek glory from people. That's not why he's doing this. But so often it is why people do it. People are glory seekers. Whether from you or from others. We don't care. We don't want your glory. Though we could have made demands as an apostle of Christ. Now the word demands here is baros. It means heaviness. It means weight. It means burden. It means trouble. In 2 Corinthians 11.9, Paul declares that he was not an economic burden upon the church. He never did that, okay? The term burden was used in the literature of the day to speak of an economic burden such as the burden of paying taxes. That's a burden. We know that Paul did not depend on the Thessalonians for his sustenance, all right? So in our text, he may be referring to their decision not to be financially burdened upon the church. And that's how most people see this. Paul was saying, I'm not, I haven't been a financial burden. Quite often in ancient texts, the term burden speaks of the weight of authority, though, of a person or a city due to their character or importance. So what Paul might not be talking about finances here, all right? He might be saying, listen, we weren't a burden to you in the sense of, as apostles, we weren't saying, you better do this, you better do that, all right? And he is using apostles here to define their mission, those who are sent by Christ. So he could be saying that, as an apostle, we could have made demands. We never did. We weren't a burden. We're not trying to do things for ourselves. We're not trying to get things for ourselves. And and financial burden could fit here. But I think as we look at the next verse, I think it maybe leans towards the apostolic authority. He says in verse 7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. All right. Hang on for a second here. There's a variant here in the Greek manuscripts. Now, before you lose it, let me say this. We don't have any original autographs. You all know that, right? None of the the things that Paul wrote, none of the things that they wrote, we don't have any originals. We have a lot of copies. We have over 6,000 copies of Greek manuscripts. You probably, not a big deal, right? Let me me give you another thing that maybe will shock you a little. Depends on how long you've been listening to me. We have over 4,000 copies of Hebrew New Testament manuscripts. Now, okay, I believe personally that the New Testament was written in Hebrew because all the New Testament people, they're all Hebrews, okay? They're all Jews, all right? I believe it was written in Hebrew, translated into Greek, went into other languages. Now, most people don't believe that, but that belief is starting to get stronger now. And there's some people out there, I watched one scholar last week, and he was saying that he has two complete copies of the New Testament in Hebrew manuscripts. Complete copies from Matthew to Revelation by two different scribes, two different authors. So, you know, it's happening. I don't know. To me, it just makes sense. You know, I can't see Yeshua speaking in Greek. 
I, you know, I just, I don't see those things, okay? It was Hebrew. Hebrew was a very, very important language, very important to Hebrew people. All right. Well, people often get uptight when they learn about existence of variations in the Greek text. What? There's mistakes? There's differences. We know where the differences are. There's nothing earth-shattering in these differences. But here's what we have to understand. The text of the New Testament is far and away the most attested and stable text of any ancient document we have. But we have differences. Now, the Lexham English Bible, commenting on this verse, says, We became infants in your midst. All right. ESV says, We became gentle. Why do they have a difference there? You see a difference between being an infant and being gentle? Well, the ancient manuscripts, the word infant there is the word napios. The word gentle is apios. There's one letter difference. Okay? One letter difference, that's it. Now, on a purely textual basis, infants is best. On a contextual basis, gentle seems best, which may reflect an intentional scribal change. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But the UBS4, which is a technical commentary on the Greek Testament, uh, we have textual critics. They look at the manuscripts. They compare the manuscripts. They try to figure out, well, this says this, this. What's the difference? Why do they have different things here? So this is a textual commentary on the Greek text. It, give, it, it gives infants a B rating, which a B rating means almost certain. So it's almost certain that it should say infants and not gentle. All right? Now, most English translations have opted for gentle. Um, Lexham was the only one I could find that didn't use gentle. But there is strong support for infant among some Greek scholars. The manuscript evidence clearly favor the reading infants, as recent editions of the Greek critical texts recognize. See, a basic canon of textual criticism is that the more difficult reading is to be preferred. Do you understand that? Okay, here's, so the scribe is translating this. He, I mean, he's, you know, writing another copy or whatever. And he gets in there and he, words the, he sees the word gentle, or he sees the word infant. Napios. And he's like, Napios? We became infants? That doesn't sound right. But Apios is just a letter difference. Let's, let's put Apios in there because gentle makes more sense. See, they would tend to go in that direction, not the other. I mean, they're not going to read gentle and say, let's add a letter here and make it Napios. Because infant doesn't seem to fit in that at all. All right, so the scribes had the tendency to clarify the words or grammar that was difficult to make it easier to understand. So you can see a scribe more wanting to go to gentle. Now, since this evidence points in the direction of the reading infants, napios, how should we understand the thought here? What's he saying? I think Paul and his associates appear to be saying that they didn't come as those who imposed their weight of authority upon these Thessalonians, but in fact, they were among the Thessalonians in a way that's just the opposite. They're like babies among them. They're like infants. They're not throwing their weight around. So infants, napios, would still stress a non-threatening presence, which still fits with those who refuse to be a burden. So, again... 
I, I think the textual evidence is just strong in that direction. All right. And then Paul says this, we're like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So he, he flips from being an infant to a nursing mother. All right. Now, the image is not merely of a mother. It's a nursing mother. Trophos, which means nursing. Um, there's times in society where nursing is more popular than other times. But, you know, if you, if you look at the medical community, the science that's actually true, I mean, there's nothing better for an infant than mother's milk. I mean, God, that's the whole reason He made that. Okay, milk for the mother. Mother can nurse. Another mother bonds with the children. And most mothers have a desire to want to do that because it's a bonding experience. And Paul just said, we're not like a mother. We're like a nursing mother. The word talpo here that he uses for caring occurs in the Greek Old Testament for a mother bird caring for her newborn eggs. Now, what does this imagery tell us about Paul? Paul says, we're like infants when we were among you. You know, we're not like false teachers trying to get things out of you, trying to lie to you so we can make... No, we're just like infants. We're not imposing any kind of burden upon you. We're like a nursing mother. All we want to do is care for you, Thessalonians. We want what's best for you. See, that's the thing about a nursing mother. A mother sacrifices her time, her energy to meet the needs of her offspring. She does this not because it's convenient. She does it because this is the best thing for her child. And mothers usually that I've seen are just excited to be able to nurse their children. They love that time. They love that bonding. And she does it because she loves them. Let me ask you a question. How many of you ever heard of a mother's union that insisted on working only eight hours a day? Anybody heard of that union? Have you known of mothers who want to punch the clock? You know, hey, I, my eight hours are up. I'm done. They just let the baby cry, let them starve, I'm done. I did enough today, right? You know, maybe some mothers will work with that kind of union to, you know, the way our society's going, but mothers work differently. They work night and day. They're doing it because of love for the child. Not to benefit themselves, they're doing it for love. They get up in the middle of the night. I love breastfeeding because, you know, I'd like to get up and help, honey, but can't help you. Can't do it. You gotta have the, <laughs> you get up and you gotta take care of it. You know, if you're bottle feeding, any, either one could do it, but that doesn't work that way with breastfeeding. So a mother makes sacrifices. And that's what Paul's saying here. We're like nursing mothers. We just want to care for you. You know, what's interesting is that Paul's imagery here might have come from Moses. Because Moses describes the leadership of Israel, you know, and a, as a nursing mother. Look what he says in Numbers eleven twelve. Did I conceive all this people? He's he's not happy here. Okay, in other words, he's kind of fussing at God. You know, hey, I, why do I get stuck? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers. So it's obvious that you know he he's like, wow, I'm I got to take care of all these children. And Paul says that we're like a nursing, we have feelings for you, we care about you, we love you, we're not trying to take, we're trying to give. Listen, false teachers always are interested in taking. Always. How does the teaching benefit them? The Stoic philosopher Seneca, who lived in Paul's day, advised people, he gave people some good advice. He says you should always follow those 
to influence them who teach by their lives. Who tell us what we ought to do and then prove it by practice. Who show us what we should avoid and then are never caught doing that which they have ordered us to avoid. That's good advice from Seneca. All right, That's who you follow. Those who teach by their lives. Those who practice what they preach, in other words. Paul, for his part, truly practiced what he preached. He lived it out. He didn't care about how much he had to suffer because he was not in it for himself. He was in it for the glory of God. He was in it to please God. He was in there because he loved these people. And this is how you have an effect on people. This is how you change people's lives. You preach the truth and you live the truth. And people, those two have to go together. The same in witnessing. If you're witnessing to somebody about Christ, your life better back up what you're saying. Because they don't want to hear what you're saying if you live in an ungodly manner. And when you practice what you preach, when you live out the Christianity that you're talking about, people take notice. When you truly become an image bearer of Yahweh, then they want to hear about the message because they see that it's changed your life. They see that it affects your life. It's made a difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at this text. Father, we have no question about Paul and his integrity, but we know many in his day did. And I thank you that he calls you to witness, Lord. Father, I pray that we would come in our Christian lives to the point where we call you as a character witness. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Father, help us to understand that you've called us to live holy and righteously in the world in which we live. Thank you for your amazing grace to us, Lord. Amen.